Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 309 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from Austin, Texas, and I couldn't be more excited about my episode today. I'm talking with my good friend, two-time Olympian, Kara Goucher, who, as of a couple of days ago, just released her book, The Longest Race. The book details her story to date, including never-before-revealed details about her time at the Nike Oregon Project. Much will be made of those details, but I assure you there is so much more to the book than that. It is truly the ups and downs of Kara's running love story, and you will not want to miss it. So go get it wherever you get books. And stay tuned for my interview with Kara shortly. Before we get there, quickly, I want to thank my sponsor for this episode, BetterHelp. They are a partner of mine. They're the largest online therapy provider. I want to go ahead and talk to you about my partnership with them and the offer so that I can get to the interview and get it to you in its entirety. I've been to therapy a couple of times in my life, once after a close friend died, once through BetterHelp to help me with some parenting challenges that I was facing. One of the things I've learned in therapy is that it's not only a process to deal with whatever specific challenge you might be reaching out for, but also it's a way to discover things about yourself that you wouldn't necessarily discover otherwise. And so I've learned much more about myself and ways that I can process some of the challenges that I face beyond those two specific areas that I was seeking help with in therapy. So I recommend it if you have something big that you're facing and you need help with that, certainly reach out to BetterHelp. But also if it's something small and you just need the help and advice of an expert, then reach out to BetterHelp as well. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. And it can be suited to your schedule via easy to set up video sessions with your therapist. You can go to their website. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched to a licensed therapist. And then you can always switch therapists at any time with no additional charge. So discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash running rogue today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash running rogue. Go check it out. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Kara. Here we go. Welcome, Kara Goucher, to the Running Rogue podcast. Kara, good to have you back on. How are you? I'm good, Chris. Good to see you and good to be back on your podcast. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think this is the third or fourth time, so you're you're a veteran. But obviously, we know each other pretty well at this point, so I'm excited to help you promote your book. Thank so you. Congrats, congrats <laughs> on the big reveal as we release this. We're recording before the release, but this will come out after. So it'll be out and to the world and we're eight days from release day right now. How are you feeling? You know, it's funny because the book got pushed back multiple times for COVID. And I thought, I kept thinking like, oh, I just wish it would come. Like, I won't be relevant anymore in 2023. No one will care what I have to say. And now that it's like a little over a week away, I'm like, oh my God, it's almost here. This is <laughs> coming so fast. So, um, but I think I was going to feel that way no matter what. I'm ready for I'm ready for it to be out there. I'm ready to share my story. So I'm very nervous, but mostly ready and excited. And still relevant. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. So I got to read the book back in September of last year. I was looking back. I hadn't couldn't really place it in my head, but I went back to look at our email exchange and it was September. 
You sent it to me in PDF form. I called you the next day after blazing through it, <laughs> like three hours. And I just remember you being so nervous to hear my reaction. And I'm just one person. So it must be nerve wracking to think of what the world's going to think. Yeah, I think, you know, I was I haven't really given it to hardly anyone to read ahead of time. Um, you should feel special that I gave that to yeah. you. Um, I think it's because I don't want to be seen differently by my friends. You know, like you, I don't want you to look at me differently. I don't want anyone to feel bad for me or anything like that. I think that's been like my biggest hang up of even sharing everything that I went through at the Oregon Project because I just don't want people to look at me differently or feel bad for me. So super nervous for you to read it, but you were awesome and you still treated me the same. And so that was like very good for me. We're still friends. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> But it was an honor to read it and I'm honored to talk to you about it now. One, I wanted to start though by talking a little bit about the process. I remember reading it the first time and Mary Pallon's, your co-author's note is what opens the book and it really hit me hard, the gravity of the book and the gravity of her role. But she talked about the process to actually vet everything you were saying. It wasn't like she just said, hey, Kara, tell me your story. She had to actually validate everything you were saying and go through a process to fact check everything because there's a lot of detail that could open up her and you and the publisher to potential lawsuits. So talk about that. I mean, what was it like going through the process with her, not only in talking to her about the details, but then trying to verify it? Well, what's kind of funny is I didn't know that she didn't really want to do the book or she wasn't that interested. You know, like I... I asked for a call with her. Actually, Shanna Burnett helped me. Um, she's the one that put us in touch with each other. And I just talked to her and, and I really liked her. I had talked to a few other people and I had liked them too, but there was something about her. She was a little a little snarky or something. And she grew up in Eugene and she really got the culture. Um, and so I didn't realize until I read her forward, basically, that she was not interested in doing it. But over time, we just really connected and for me, it, she came to Boulder and stayed with us for a few days. And I literally just gave her everything, all my old scrapbooks, with like bins and bins of newspaper clippings and journals and all that kind of stuff. And we just went through every little thing. Um, and, you know, 99.9% .9 of it was unhelpful. Um, but I think it gave her a greater sense of who I am and the way I operate. And then also I felt like this is my I'm giving you everything, like my deepest, my deepest, darkest secrets, and you're seeing them and you're reading them in my own handwriting and things like that. So I feel like we were already on a great path, but after that trip, I feel like we got even closer. It was a four-year journey. You guys met in 2019, releasing it now. So it's a long time to be spent deep in your own story. Yeah. And honestly, there were days where she would, we would schedule, you know, a two hour call every other day or something. And there were a couple of times where she called where I just start crying. Something had happened. You know, like that's the whole thing with this organ project is that every, every few months there's something and then there's a new article about it. And then the trolls come back out. And I remember there was a, a supposed documentary, but with no one actually involved in the organ project. And I, it just crushed me because I was actually a part of it, but I had been told it was going to be something totally different than it ended up being. Um, and so basically she paid, played therapist for two hours. I just was like, I'm so sick of this bullshit. And, da, 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 da. and then we got no work done that day. But I feel like all of those moments, um, she helped her see who I am and the things that I carry, but also it made me trust her even more deeply as we went 
you know, throughout the process. And you're doing this to tell your story, right? I mean, that's part of the reason behind it because others were telling your story, putting words and experiences in, in your mouth, so to speak. And this is a way for you to get the record straight. So talk about that and the reasons behind the book. Yeah, I think for years I've been frustrated with the misinformation that's out there and the assumptions that are out there. And so I just wanted to tell my story from my own words. I don't need any men talking about my experience that weren't there. I don't need you know, ex-teammates that weren't there. I want to talk about it because I was there and I experienced it. So you know, it sounds great, but then you get into it and you're like, oh God, I don't know if I really want to share all this stuff. But kind of Mary and I decided like we were, it was all or nothing. Like if we're going to do this, we're going to share everything. Um, because I don't like the whole point of it is to tell what happened to me and what I lived through and what Adam and I went through. And if I left anything out, even things that make me uncomfortable, then it wouldn't be what I wanted, which was just laying it all out there. For me, this has been a crazy process. It put me back in therapy, which was good. But like all these things I had sort of packed away that I never dealt with. Um, but honestly, the end result is a book I'm proud of. And also, I feel like I can finally move on from a lot of this stuff because I got to speak and I got to say what happened. And now I don't have to, when I read someone else's line, I don't have to care anymore because I already said what I wanted to say. Go buy the book. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and you share excruciating detail in in many cases, which I, I, I would imagine must have been tough to get out on the page. I mean, if it wasn't for Mary, it wouldn't have made the book, right? So I really credit her and just being patient with me for when I was ready to share those things with her. But also, I don't think everyone realizes, like, I was testifying still during this time. You know, like, Salazar got his first uh, he got his ban right as we started this process, but then he appealed it. So then I had to go through the appeal while we were still writing the book. And then there was a safe sport case and he was banned for life. And then he appealed it. And all that was while, you know, we were working on this book. So there was, there was just a lot going on and yeah, just hindsight. I'm glad it took, I'm glad we had those extra time, that extra time to get the book finished because otherwise it would have been finished before, the safe sport ban was final or other things that are really important and that really matter um, to me. And there is a lot spent obviously on the Oregon project. The subtitle is inside the secret world of abuse, doping and deception at Nike's elite running team. But the book is also about more than that. And that's one theme I want to make sure people are aware of. You talk about it at the end and the beginning of the book that really this is a running love story in a sense, your relationship with the sport started when you're six years old at a one mile race in Hermantown <laughs> at the running festival there. So talk about that race and why you fell in love with the sport then. Well, it was all due to my grandpa. My grandpa took me to this race um, at the Hermantown Fun Festival. And I had never, I mean, I'm, all kids run around, you know, but I had never thought about running as like a sport or an activity. I was playing soccer and dancing back then. I, I mean, I grew up in that generation where you just were busy all the time, always doing something. Um, but my grandpa took me and he only took me, which like will still stand out in my mind. Like, why didn't he bring my older sister? Um, my little sister was too young, but he only took me. And 
I fell at the start. He loved to tell the story, by the way, Chris, at his <laughs> retirement community. I, anytime I come to visit, he'd start talking to everybody and they'd be like, we know, Cal. Um, but she I fell. The story. She oh, fell. God. She got up. Yes. And, and he is always is like, I am the reason she's a runner. And it's true. So I fell. He thought I was going to be upset. Instead, I jumped up and showed competitive spirit, which shocked him. And we got up, got up and finished and ran that race. And um, that was like the first time I ever did something like that. And I loved it. But I didn't, I didn't know that it could be like a team organized sport until much later. So it was just something I would do. We had this Mother's Day run in Minnesota. We had this life run, obviously around grandma's marathon, there was stuff. So, and Park Point there, Park Point five milers. So I just would jump in these races. I didn't train or anything like that. Um, Maybe if I was out at the cabin, my my papa was going to run to the Minuet, which is like the little gas station. Maybe I'd run with him. And that's all it was until I joined... um, middle school cross-country team. You also had a potential opportunity to, to switch sports, to do biathlon, to go train at the Olympic Development Center. <laughs> do, you I know. Think, do you ever think about what would have been had you made that choice? I mean, if I, I just think about at that age, you're a kid who wants to be an Olympian, who knew that was a goal of yours from an early age. You have this opportunity in a sport that you're doing in biathlon, which is a winter sport with skiing and shooting involved for those that don't know. And yet you turned it down. That to me is just such a striking decision to make at a young age. You know, it was between my junior year and senior year of high school in the summer. And I had been invited to train at the Olympic Training Center in um, Lake Placid in New York for the biathlon. And I had so much fun while I was there. And I, I definitely progressed as a skier while I was there. But when I got invited to stay and, you know, live there and train and really try to become an Olympian in that. I I was torn, but really not, not really. Like I knew I wanted to run. And even though my running hadn't been going that great at that time, I knew that that's where my heart was. And so, yeah, I, I turned it down and went back to Minnesota. And, you know, I didn't even really think about it until 2006 when the other girls that were at camp with me, now women, made the Olympic team. And I was like, no, 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 was it 06? No, it was 02, 02, 2002. And I just remember thinking like, oh my God, like I was so jealous. Like they had done it. They were at the Olympics. They had the kit. They had everything. And that was the only time I really felt like, wow, is that the biggest mistake of my life? You know? Um, But, you know, six years later, I made an Olympic team. So it worked out okay. (laughs) Right. Somewhere in a sliding doors, other universe, you're skiing biathlon as a biathlete. <laughs> I'm a terrible skier too. It's so funny. I just have like a huge engine. So, um, but I was a decent shot. So anyway, yeah, it's a past life for sure. Crazy to think about. Talk about, you, you detail quite a bit about the up and down version of your early running journey from struggling late in high school to potentially not getting the recruiting trips that you wanted to obviously excelling at at the collegiate level and then struggling again as an early pro. Talk about that up and down and how you worked through it. Yeah, I think it's important to share the up and down because a lot of people only see the highlights, right? They see, oh, you you won a state championship and you went to Foot Locker and you won an NCAA championship, but there was so much bad in between all of that. And I I think in high school when I was really struggling, 
I'm so thankful for the teammates I had. They're still my closest friends. I mean, I still go and meet them. We try to meet up once a year and we all go run and we laugh about how we used to be like good athletes. Um, But they really would always focus me on the team. We had a really good team. And I think that if I hadn't had them or even the coach I had, Dick Skog, he didn't care. He wanted me to do well. But he wanted me to be happy. You know what I mean? And so even though when I wasn't running well, he knew he just always believed I could get it back, you know. Um, But it was hard. And I think without them, I probably would be a statistic, like one of those girls that was really good little and then let it go behind. Um, But when I knew I wanted to run in college, I knew I wasn't going to get the scholarships I thought I was going to get. And so I had to really shift my focus of okay, well, I'm not going to get a scholarship to Stanford and I'm not going to get that full ride to Georgetown. Like, what am I going to do? And I thought if I could get on a good team, at least I could fight for a national championship in this different way that I hadn't thought about. So that's how I ended up at Colorado and I was injured there. Um, And then I finally got healthy and I did win a national championship. I won a few and my team won, but also I was dabbling with just disordered eating. I'll just call it what it is. I was basically like flirting with an eating disorder. And so then that really led to a bunch of injuries again. So I, I mean, it's, it was just always up and down, but I think anytime I really thought about quitting, I would get this like really uncomfortable pain in my chest. And it was basically myself calling bullshit on myself. You know, it was like, you're not done yet. You know, you have more. And sometimes it seemed like totally insane. You know, I would wake up I signed a contract with Nike, ran one race, and immediately was injured. And I would just be—I bought myself an elliptical. I was like, "Ooh, I'm rich now!" You know, I bought myself an elliptical, <laughs> and I'd be ellipticaling for hours and thinking, "What am I doing?" You know, I had gotten a postgraduate scholarship. I could like be someone. I could do something, but I couldn't. I couldn't let it go, and I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I didn't. But it was—it definitely was hard. There were days where I was like, "I hate running," and I hate I was ever good at it. I hate everything about it. But then I'd be like, but I don't want to give it up. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the disordered eating topic, you talk about how Adam helps you work through that. And I just want to dig into that a little bit more. You know, what do you think the keys were to creating more balance in your relationship with food at that time? You know, I, I had a teammate in high school that had an eating disorder. And so I had seen it modeled. I also saw it, I went to Foot Locker Nationals twice and I remember there were girls that couldn't eat the food that was out. You know, their parents had to bring them their own food. So I had seen eating disorders. And then when I got to college, as I started to rise up the ranks, I really was looking at the women that were winning and they looked a lot leaner than I did. And I think it's, as for a lot of women, it started off as something like nothing big. Like I'm just going to lose eight pounds. But then there's like this weird high when you get to that losing eight pounds, then you're like, well, maybe I'll lose 10. Oh, I just want 10. Well, now I hit the 10. Well, maybe I could do 12. And it just got it got completely out of control. I mean, I weighed 113 pounds and I'm 5'8 and I raced at the Olympics at 125, you know, so it just, and I was very lean at the Olympics. So it just got out of hand. And I was really thankful that the people around me were worried. I remember Mark Wetmore pulled Adam aside. He's like, I'm worried about her. He pulled me aside. My mom was definitely worried. But I was had just started to date Adam and he was so normal around food. Like he would like open up a bag of Doritos and just eat it. 
and wasn't thinking in his head, well, like at the time I think, well, if I eat five of those, then I have to eat less, you know, less dinner. Like I was totally insane. I thought about food and calories all the time. And so I think being around someone that was so normal around food and who was extremely successful. And also, you know, Adam, like he was just like, you need to eat. Like, I can't do this. You know what I mean? So I think him just modeling normal behavior and having success, I started to realize I spend so much time adding up calories and worrying about this and weighing myself. Like, I don't, I just don't want to live like that anymore. I think it really was the community around me that got me out of it. And then you started to perform better as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a a slump, right? There was a slump at first. So I was getting healthy. I was definitely healthy um, and was eating normally again my senior year when I run the cross won the cross country championship. But I think then I started to have all these injuries and I really do think it was because for about a year I did not treat my body well. And so then I kind of like, yeah, I fell into this really bad slump. And I do remember fast forwarding to 2006, I finally ran a PR in the 5k. It had been a six year old PR. And I remember weighing myself right after the race. And I was like, I think I weighed almost 20 pounds more than I had in at that point in college where I had run the other time. And that was so healing for me because it was like, it's all about training and being healthy. It's not about what the scale says, but I do feel lucky that I was in the environment I was in. And about that time you and Adam decided to go to Nike, join the Oregon project. I want to talk about that first experience on Nike campus. Cause I think people may not understand how wowing that first experience is at Beaverton. I I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I was an intern at Nike. What? In 2004 <laughs> for a summer. Oh my God. Really talking about this? During grad school, I was an intern at Nike for three months over the summer. And so I was there in Beaverton on campus as an intern in strategic planning for global equipment. And, and I remember stepping on that campus and just being completely floored. You know, it's it's like truly a playground for athletes and you have people obviously working and doing their jobs, but they're also playing their sports. I mean, you have the most ridiculous fields. I mean, the the soccer field is the most immaculately groomed soccer field I've ever seen in my life as someone who grew up playing soccer. And so you're just completely wowed. And then, of course, everybody there is just so into it, so bought in. People have Nike swoosh tattoos. I mean, it's it's crazy environment. So. I know that feeling of being wound by stepping onto that campus. So describe that when you first get there the the first time as somebody who wants to have the best. So I actually did take a visit to Nike right after I graduated. Adam was running um, a mile, I think, in Portland where he ran 354. Um, and then we went and spent a day at the Nike campus. And that's when I you know, met with everybody and ended up, you know, we agreed on a contract or whatever. Or we... Maybe we agree later. I don't know. But I was totally wowed. But the second time I went, it was much more in depth. You know, like I was going to be living here. I was going to be using all of this stuff, not just stopping by for a visit. And it did give me a little imposter syndrome. Like, I'm not that cool. I mean, you're one of my best friends. (laughs) You know, I'm not that cool. I grew up on like goulash. I never knew what organic was until like literally (laughs) 10 years ago. And I felt, you know, like these are some of the best athletes in the world. I mean, every building is amazing, right? The Mia Ham at that point, the Lance Armstrong Center, um, the Bow, 
Tiger Woods building went in shortly after. And so it, you're just amongst legends. And as you walk around the campus, you know, there's, there's history all around the campus of these athletes that have done all these incredible things. And of course, Alberto had a building as well. So I think it, it's just, it's, you know, it, eventually it did become my home and I had no problem going there and showing up every day, but it was a little daunting, like, oh, I'm going to be here and, you know, all the execs can just look out their window and watch me running. And this is big. You know, I, I, if we decide to do this, like this is pretty big. Yeah. But it's, that's the first bit of indoctrination (laughs) that they give you is just showing you rolling out the red carpet, so to speak. And then then they send you over to the employee store and they're like, Oh, you're set up with $2,000, get whatever you want. You know, and at the employee store, everything's half off and they'll ship it anywhere for free. I mean, it was like, when I went there right after I graduated from college, it was like whining and dining. Like they took me out to this super nice dinner. They're giving me the earliest, uh, the earliest, um, sort of like running tracker they had, which Wetmore couldn't stop laughing about. Cause it said it could be off, you know, up to a 10th of a mile plus or minus. And he's like, so if you went on a 10 mile run, it might say nine, you know, or it might say 11, like that is not accurate. And I was like, whatever, it's cool. Um, but yeah. And then they send you over to the employee store. So it's, you know, you're amongst, you're literally standing amongst legends and there's always someone there, someone famous coming by. You're, you're at this, like I grew up worshiping Nike. I had Nike posters in my room. I, I wore Air Maxes. I didn't care. At, the, at Austin Jarrow, he'd say, I think this A6 shoe might fit you better. I'm like, whatever, new Air Max, nine and a half, just give it to me. I'm not even going to try anything else on, right? right. So it, it's really, um, it, def- it definitely like sucks you in. You're like, wow, I get to be a part of this culture and this brand that's so powerful and so cool. Yeah, I think I spent my entire summer paycheck at the employee store <laughs> because it was, it was 2004 summer. So it was Athens Olympics year. And mm-hmm. they, of course, Nike always does big stuff for the Olympics. And so they had these special Zoom Myler shoes and like all these different country colors. And so I probably, I probably had like eight pairs of Zoom Mylers. <laughs> and of course, you know, all the swag I could get. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. And I think about it now and it's kind of sad, but yeah, but we all got into that, right? Yeah. That's the thing is it's like, I don't, don't need more stuff, but if there's something about it, that's intoxicating, you're like, Ooh, I have the newest stuff. And then even living there and training there, we had access to the different labs. And also we had access to new shoes that were being made. And you know, you get into this, it sucks you in. You're like, I want to yeah. be important. I want to have the newest, I want to have all the glitz and glamour. So it definitely sucks you in. Yeah. As an employee, I got a free fitness test, like a VO2 max test. And I remember getting my results and they would show you where you were against the average person, average American against the average Nike employee, which is <laughs> a step change higher. And then they would show you where you fell against different elite athletes. And that's when I knew I wasn't going to be an Olympian, but maybe I already knew that. But anyway, but yeah, it's just, it's, I mean, it's a completely enamoring environment and I would imagine easy to then get lulled into all this chaos you got lulled into with the Oregon Project. And I know Salazar was essentially grooming you, for lack of a better term, from from the very beginning, or at least once he knew you had potential. 
Yeah. I mean, look, I was never like homecoming queen or super popular or had, you know, I was not that cool in high school. I mean, like ask anyone. They were, Everyone was nice to me, but I was never cool. And I had never been in a situation where I was, I was cool and I got a lot of attention. And um, I mean, I fell for it. It, it was nice to get the attention. It was nice to fit in. It was nice to be at the cool kids table. That That's not anything that I had ever experienced before. And so I definitely was all in and all of the grooming stuff. I, you know, I was just like, whatever you want, I'm going to fall for it. Go for it. So, yeah. yeah. And at the time you were also the only female in the group. So I think that also probably contributed to creating a weird environment for you. Yeah. And I just convinced myself it was fine. You know, I was, it was a boys club, a lot of like boys, you know, locker room stuff. And I just was like, I'm going to, I am not going to mess this up. I'm going to fit in there. Everyone's going to love me. It's going to be great. And there's things that I look back on that I am, I don't want to say ashamed, but I, I really regret acting the way I acted sometimes just to fit in with the, with the group. Yeah, and the list of things you detail that happened to you with the Oregon Project is pretty extensive. I started to make a list as I was rereading it the other day, and it's pretty, it's pretty absurd. Even if we do, even if we take out the worst things, in terms of the locker room talk, Salazar sharing sexual details about him and his wife, touching you in inappropriate ways exposing you in inappropriate ways while massaging you. I mean, it's it's pretty shocking, some of the revelations that you share. And that's not even the worst, which we'll get to. So how is it that you came to normalize some of these things? You know, I just felt like if this was weird, someone would say something, you know, like, Nike would say something. Nike wouldn't let this stuff go on. I mean, right away, the first altitude training camp Adam and I went on, I'm seeing stuff that's weird. And I do remember even Adam and I talked about it. We're like, that's kind of weird. But then you just, you just start to think, well, that's just Alberto and that's just how he does it. And he gets, he's successful. And if it was wrong, someone would say something. If it was wrong for him to take your shorts and tuck them up and expose your ass to everybody, someone would say something, but no one's saying anything. So I don't want to be the person that's like a weird prude or that makes anyone else uncomfortable. I just want to fit in. Looking back, it's embarrassing. But I, but that's how it felt. You know, Adam and I just felt like, well, that's how it's done here. And we're lucky to be here. I mean, that lucky to be here crap was always in my head. You know, anyone else would do anything to be in your position and you have it. So I just started to like think, I mean, I really just thought it was all normal. I really convinced myself that, yeah, it's totally normal. The things I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. And the power dynamics completely out of whack as well, because you've got your coach who's paid by your sponsor and everything is basically wound together where he's essentially in charge of your job as well. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And there were emails between, you know, Alberto and Mark Parker and John Capriotti about my training, about my fitness. I mean, it was like, even the CEO knew how I was doing. Right. So what am I going to, first of all, I was convinced that I was, I had convinced myself that there was nothing wrong with what was happening. But even if I did, where am I going to go? 
I mean, like everybody is involved and no one's saying anything. So, you know, I just, it, I felt like I just had to put it in a box. Anything that made me uncomfortable, like, oh, just put it in a box and shove it away. No one's perfect. I'd always tell myself, no one's perfect. Everybody has their issues, but I'm succeeding here and I feel loved here and conflicted. Right. I mean, Alberto's not conflicted, right? I mean, right. he just does what he wants. But for me, after so many years, you know, I felt indebted to Alberto as well. I felt like he took me from a washed up collegiate star and helped me find my talent again. And, you know, even when I left Wetmore, he was like, not happy and not the gent- gentlest that he had ever been. But he said, you have so much talent. I hope you can find it, you know? And so I knew it was in there, but then it was like, I, I mean, I really honestly felt like I could not run without Alberto. Like we are, we were the same. There was no care without Alberto. So I felt like completely, I don't know. I trusted everything he said and I couldn't, anything that made me uncomfortable, I had to just shove it away because what, like he's the guy, he's the guy that brought me back from the dead. So he has to be good. Right. He was also a father figure Mm -hmm. to someone who lost their father at a young age. So that had to be a part of it too. For sure. And you know, that's one thing that I think it's hard for people to understand, but if you, if you've lost a parent or someone very close to you when you're little, it kind of leaves this I don't know, like this longing in your heart, like you feel like you're not completely whole. And my mother was remarried for a long time, but then that marriage ended up in a really bad divorce. And obviously my grandpa filled that role a lot, but it was always, I've always been, I think, a little insecure that I didn't have that person. And when I say Alberto was a father figure, I mean, he's telling me he loves me as a daughter, flat out telling me. He's calling my mom and telling my mom he loves me and he would never do anything to hurt me. He considers me his daughter. So I do feel like people have misrepresented that. And because, you know, some things I've done have been leaked and I said that I loved him, but we were saying it to each other and it was completely in that frame of this is a person I look up to. This is a person I trust and I care about him deeply. He filled that, that void for me. Yeah. And he took, took that trust and took advantage of it. So one of the things you detail in the book that you haven't shared elsewhere is the fact that he sexually abused you, touched you inappropriately during massage, not once, but twice. Also tried to come on to you and kiss you at one point. How is it coming out about that part of the experience for the first time? It's really hard. Also, I think I'm a little bit traumatized from the safe sport appeal and having his lawyer just attack me so much. You know, it's embarrassing. I wasn't a teenager like Mary Kane was, or I wasn't um, just out of college like some of his other athletes. I was a grown married woman. And so... I think there's a lot of, there is shame there that I like, you know, you get that feeling like, oh, I allowed that to happen, even though I've been through therapy enough to know that I didn't allow that to happen, but that's how it felt. And so at the time I just had to bottle it up and pretend like it didn't happen. But coming forward with it, it's hard because I know there'll be people who won't understand why I didn't leave the first time it happened. Um, But I've talked to enough people who have been in a similar situation to me to know that's very normal. Uh, but it's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. And I, I didn't tell anyone, I didn't do anything about it. It wasn't until, 
uh, the incident on the plane where he hit on me and we were face to face. I mean, that's what's kind of sad is that was my breaking point. It wasn't all the other crap I had been through. It wasn't all the stuff I was worried about or the violations I thought I was seeing anti-doping wise. It was that moment where that happened and I went to the bathroom on the plane and I just thought, I, I don't know how I got here. Like, how did I get here? You know, I, I'm, I don't even know how he, like, how did I get here where he thought that was okay? And so that was really what finally, that was what broke me and made me decide to leave. I think one of the things that's powerful about the storytelling on that part of your story is how I think it will be relatable to other survivors. You talk about first, just not knowing if it was real you know, yes. questioning, did that really happen to me at all? And I would imagine people can relate to that. Then you talk about the self-blame, you know, maybe this was my fault in some way. You talk about the shame and the guilt that you felt. You talk about not wanting to tell people how you didn't tell Adam till many years later. And then even still, we've talked about how you feel bad at some level for what happened, even though it wasn't your fault. So I think people will see that and relate to it. And, and I don't think anybody can really understand that side of it or those sides of it and unless they've been through it. Yeah. I mean, I look, Chris, I was never going to tell anybody. I was going to take it to the grave. And when I first met with USADA, they had asked me, um, I had told them what happened on the plane, but nothing else. And they had asked me, did he ever touch you in a way or do anything inappropriate? And I said, well, this is back in 2013. I said, well, there, there were a couple of massages that made me uncomfortable, but no. Um, and f- then fast forward to 2018 and we're prepping for a hearing and they ask it again. And I had just had a massage with a massage therapist where, I mean, we're athletes, right? And sometimes you're working in really personal areas. So this massage therapist was working on my high hamstring, um, my high hamstring attachment. And his finger slipped and it, it hit me in a private spot. And he immediately stopped and said, I can leave the room and this can be done. I apologize. you know." And I was like, well, no, it's okay. But that really rattled me because I started to think, well, if you touch someone inappropriately, that's actually the proper response, right? And um, and so it was a few days later when it, they brought it up again at the USADA hearing, and I just said it. I said, well, his finger went in my private multiple times. And I mean, the whole room was like just staring at me. And um, Bill Bach was telling me, well, that's sexual assault. And I was like, no, no, it's not. I couldn't – I had never – I don't see myself as someone that had something like that happen to. And so, I mean, it like really turned my life upside down because the next day I had someone from SafeSport and I was saying, I don't want to report this. This is the stuff that ends marriages. I'm not, I don't want to do this, but it, I mean, it had this huge effect on me. Like I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stop shaking. It was really an awful experience, but that's, that's how it finally came out. They had to report it. They had to report it. And that's what they told me. They had to by law. And I was like, please don't, please don't, you know. 
Um, and I'm not mad at them. Look, in the end, it set me free because I finally got to get it off my chest and I finally got to share it with my family and I finally get to move on. And that would still be a cancer in me. So I'm not mad at them. At the time I was, at the time I was really, really mad. And it forced me to tell my family because there was, a, there was a possibility it would come up in the anti-doping hearing, not because it has anything to do with doping, but it has, it shows, you know, the culture of manipulation and stuff. And so it forced me to have to tell my mom and my sisters because I said, if this gets into the, if they ask me about it and if it's in the transcripts, I can't trust that no one will not leak the transcripts. And I don't want my family hearing about this from someone else, you know, but I, it was hard. I wasn't ready to do it. I mean, even when I talked to them, I was like speaking in monotone, Alberto gave me a massage. I didn't touch me inappropriately. You know, like no details. It was, it was awful. It was horrible, horrible experience, everything about it. Well, and then you had to share it multiple times in the safe sport, safe sport case, including in that situation, getting attacked by Alberta's lawyers. How hard was that? But ultimately that was the linchpin that got him the lifetime ban from safe sport. You know, when safe sport, so I first talked to them in 2018, I said, I'm not interested. She said, well, we just need to talk and we'll get it on record, but it won't go anywhere. And then she called me back multiple times. I never respond. I never took her calls. I never responded to her emails. It wasn't until over a year later, maybe even a year and a half later, when Mary Kane talked about her story and what she um, experienced at the Oregon Project. And she filed a Safe Sport complaint, or she went to Safe Sport. And then uh, Amy Begley joined her. And Safe Sport reached back out to me. And I said, I still don't think I want to do it. I'm happy to like speak on Amy's behalf because I witnessed what happened to Amy. And I said, I'll, I'll think about it. Like, Give me a week to think about it. And I remember talking to some close friends about it, and they were like, you don't owe anybody anything else. Like, you've already done enough. But just the way when I would think about retiring would make me feel icky, that made me feel icky. Like, I could tell the truth and protect someone, or I could not tell the truth and and say I'm protecting myself, but really it's going to eat at me for a long time. So anyway, I eventually called back and said, as long as I'm anonymous, I will do it. Um, and so, yeah, I did it. But I, I remember talking to you during that time and it's just so hard to go through that. I think that's one of the things that, again, people don't realize in these situations is that speaking out, telling your story in these situations is harder in some ways than keeping it buried because you're yeah. opening yourself up to attack. You're opening yourself up to reliving it over and over again. How did you work through all of that? Well, that was like the time that really put me in therapy, talking to, honestly, I, I worked a lot. The first part of the safe sport experience wasn't that bad because I didn't have to see Alberto. It was more like they were taking witness statements and, um, and then, and he was banned for life. But then when the appeal happened, that was horrible because now I had to testify and I had to, um, talk about it in front of him, talk about it with his lawyers I was able to have a safe person come with me. I couldn't bring Adam because I knew Adam would freak out. And originally my mom was going to come be my safe person. But I started to think, my mom's going to hear details she's never heard. and She's probably going to start crying. And then I'm going to be worrying about my mom while I'm trying to testify. So actually my friend Lisa Jung came with me and... You know, we went in there and it was, I can't even remember anymore, probably like four hours of testimony. But every time I look at her, she'd just give me like a stern look and like a thumbs up, like you're doing great. And as soon as it was over, we both just sobbed. And that's what I needed. Um, but that 
that definitely set me back. And that was right before the holidays in uh, right before Christmas in 2021. And it was really hard on me. And the judge had asked for extra time to make a decision. And I thought, oh God, like I just wanted it over by Christmas. I wanted to be my normal self on Christmas for my son. And it was like an early Christmas present that he ended up not taking the time. But then it was super stressful because the New York Times somehow had a report of the state support case. I don't even have a report. And they knew it was me. And they kept contacting me and saying, we're going to run this story and we need a quote from you. And I thought like, it felt like revictimization because it felt like they were forcing me to talk about something that I didn't want to talk about. So I never, I never did give them a quote. And they did run the story and they talked about what Alberta was found guilty of or what he was sanctioned for. Um, and no one ever tied it back to me, which is wild. I think some people did because they'd text me and they'd say, I can't imagine Alberto did that. Can you? And I'd be like, yeah, I don't know. And then they'd say, well, I hope it's healing for that person. So I think some people in my life did, but in general, that story ran and, and it was over and it didn't turn my life upside down the way I thought it was going to. So now I'm just going to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, thank you for doing that. I, I know how hard it was. I also, it's crazy to me considering all the detail in your book about all the ways you were abused. Sexual abuse was a part of it, but the mental, emotional, psychological, physical abuse also seemed massive as well. And the fact that it took your story about those two massages to get him a lifetime ban is, to me, feels a little bit wrong that it needed to go to that level in order to get him a ban when all these other things are ban worthy from my perspective as well. Yeah, I know. I, I never would have thought that that would be the one thing that had to be told, but you know, our, our sport hasn't really come to terms with the power dynamics that we have. And hopefully this book will help open some eyes or at least open some parents' eyes or women's eyes before they sign with the team. But yeah, I mean, I'm not the only one that suffered at the Oregon Project. There's right. other people. And it it's weird that all of the things I went through, if that hadn't happened, you know, like that was the thing. So it's just, that is upsetting. And I wish, I wish that it had not happened to me, but, um, but uh, it did. The other upsetting thing is the fact that Nike defended him in the USADA case. Nike defended him in the safe sport case. They funded his defense. And you've told me about him bringing in an army of lawyers to all of these situations how much do you think Nike has spent on his legal defense? Any idea? Oh, I mean, I don't know for sure, but the very first USADA hearing I heard was multiple millions. So then there was an appeal on that, then the safe sport, then an appeal on that. So I would guess, it's hard to know, but definitely mm-hmm. we're well millions. over $10 million. Millions. Yeah, yeah, millions. So knowing that, it makes it easy not to buy Nike yet at this point. I know. Well, that's the thing, right? Is you you know me and you know these instances. And so that's one thing I'm I'm interested in seeing if there's I, I don't I'm not like out to take Nike down. I'm really not. Like if if Nike invited me to come for a meeting and they apologize for everything I went through and they acknowledge it all, I'd be like, awesome. And I'd shake and I'd walk <laughs> away. Um, but I but 
I feel like I deserve that. And I feel like these other women deserve that too. We deserve the acknowledgement that we were put in an environment that wasn't safe and that they knew about 99% of it and that they chose to do nothing. And not only did they choose to do nothing, they defended him. Yeah. The other part that's crazy to me is that there are still people in the sport that don't trust you Mm -hmm. because of your affiliation with them. And I know there are people that still think that you doped or inadvertently, perhaps he doped you. How do you reconcile that? I mean, how do you know for sure that he didn't do something that you didn't know about? Well, that was one of my really big concerns with going to USADA. So I signed over all of my lab work for all of the years I was there and from um, other lab reports from doctors I had seen. And I told them, I also receive massages. There's a possibility that he rubbed testosterone in me. And it did keep me up because I thought, if I find out that he did that, I have to give up everything that I did. Like, I just have to. Um, But for me, one of the biggest reliefs of my life was when USADA came back and we're like, we went through everything. We found nothing, you know. Uh, But there will always be suspicion because I ran my best times when I was running for him. People don't realize, yeah, I was in my early 30s and I had been injury free. That's everyone's prime. And then I had a child, which I do not regret at all, but I was forced to come back quickly. And so I was dealt, I dealt with injuries for the rest of my career. So of course that was going to be the best period of my career. Um, but look, if I worried about what everyone, I mean, I've had people that I considered friends say I should give up my medal from Osaka. They're not my friends anymore. (laughs) But (laughs) um, if I worried about that kind of stuff, I never would have come forward and he would still be coaching. I had to be willing to say, hey, a lot of people are going to think I'm a liar. A lot of people are going to think I cheated and I have to live with that. Otherwise, I have to just be silent and let him keep going. And at the end of the day, I felt like I had to sacrifice myself a little bit and my reputation a little bit to make sure that the sport was protected. We also have to remind those people that you almost made an Olympic team. I know. Racing super shoes in 2016 after all of this. I know. Yeah. I think actually I, I, that was the happiest time of my career was when I moved back to Boulder because I was doing it for me. The companies I was running for had zero requirements my coaches, Mark Wetmore and Heather Burroughs were so invested in me, like shoveling the track card, like laying out things that mimicked the the LA course. And I was so fulfilled as a person and as an athlete during that time. And it's, it sucks. It sucks so bad that I didn't make that team. Um, but I'm so grateful that that's how my career ended with Mark and Heather. Cause I loved every minute of it. Another thing I appreciate about from the book is your willingness to share details about contracts. Most people won't do <laughs> that. that. <laughs> That's the one thing I might get sued for because it says in my contract that it has to be secret for the life and beyond. But I feel like, yeah, I just wanted, I, again, Mary and I, our, our theory was all or nothing. We either tell people what it's truly like and we share those dollar figures or we don't do the book. So yeah, I shared everything, my contracts, my appearance fees, all that kind of stuff. Are you worried about the legal ramifications? What does that look like? How are you protected there? Or are you? I'm not. Um, Everything else in the book that I could potentially be sued for, I have 
framed as opinion because it is my opinion. It's my opinion based on what I saw and experienced. The contract is just a flat out, I'm breaking the rules. I did reach out to an agent and asked him if he thought they'd come after me. And he was like, with everything else you've said, probably not. (laughs) But he said that, you know, there is a possibility. But again, I feel like, you know, one of the things I loved about when I moved to Boulder is I got to run with Emma Coburn and become good friends with her. And we could talk about these things. And I, I feel like that helps you realize what you're worth, what you should be asking for. Sometimes you have no idea you're going into a race. You have no idea what you should ask for. So I do think it's important to, you know, share these dollar signs, even though it's uncomfortable. But I think it would, it helps people realize, wait, Kara was getting paid that? Like, I deserve this, right? So, I mean, and granted, this was 10 years ago. So I'm sure the value of athletes is different now. But yeah, I mean, I just laid it all out there. It's important. I mean, more transparency is one thing our sport needs. I won't give numbers because you'll have to read the book for it. But one thing that struck me in reading it was the fact that you made less money signing your deal with Wazell than you made in your first Nike contract. Yes. That shows your desire to get away from the company that was Nike and and how they didn't support you. But talk about that. Why were you so willing to take less money than your first pro contract? Well, less, uh, less than a 15th of what you were making at your peak at Nike in order to change to Wazell. I just didn't want to be a part of that system. I told Adam, if I have to run for Nike, I'm done. I will never run again. And so we started the process of talking to other companies. And I did have a million dollar offer from another company, which I ended up turning down. Um, But I believed in what Wazell was trying to do. And when I went on my visit there, they asked, when I first went to visit Wazell, they asked me, what am I passionate about? And I was like, I don't know. What are you passionate about? Like, what's coming up for you? And they were like, no, 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 no. Like, what do you care about? And I was like, I don't know. What do you care about? And I realized that I had no idea who I was. I had no idea what I cared about. I mean, I knew, but I didn't really. And um, there was something about that that really excited me, that they cared about me no matter what. And yeah, I mean, it was a huge blow to us financially, (laughs) (laughs) but it was 100% worth it. I do remember that this just came to my head as as you were talking about that. I do remember during that time, I was just a fan of yours at that point, but you created a website, your own website, and you started to try to put out your own content. And when you were at Nike, they wouldn't really let you do that, right? You were were a robot. You were just an an athlete there to perform. They didn't let you show any of your personality. And you started to do that in small ways with that very first caragoucher.com. I know that no, nobody uses it. So don't go there. There's yeah, nothing on there. Don't go there now. But, but yeah, yeah. It was interesting. And, and obviously your voice has grown significantly from there, but I, I think about that being such a pivotal moment of you deciding that, Hey, no, I can be myself and show that to people. And it's encouraged. Yeah. They were really encouraging about it. And, you know, I, again, I'm like, I grew up in Northern Minnesota. Like I literally ate spam on Christmas Eve. Like, I don't know that my voice is the voice of everyone. But I started to see that even though maybe I'm not the person that know, is all knowing, people were listening when I spoke. And then that became really important to me then because there were other people that were speaking that no one was listening to. And so I started to realize that I do have power in what I say and what I share. And I mean, baby steps, Chris, like this has been a baby step thing. Honestly, this is like the big final moment, but I mean, I never... <laughs> there's no way 
when did I join Wazelle in 2014? There's no way in 2013 I would have ever thought about writing a book and talking about this stuff. But I think it has been, thanks to Sally and the team at Wazelle, it's been this long-term thing of me being like, well, why can't I talk about what happened to me? And why shouldn't I be talking about it? And maybe it can help someone else. So it's been a long process to get here. I mean, a 10-plus 10, 10 year journey, really. Yeah. And beautiful, beautiful to see it. When you think about all this stuff as we start to wrap here, you love to run. I think that's one reason why we connect is we both have just an absolute passion for it, not just competing and performing, but also just the pure activity of it. But then you also think about the darkness that has brought you. When you ask yourself, was it worth it? What's the answer? Yeah, it was worth it. You know, I loved running before I knew I was good at it. And then I found out I was good at it and I had all these big dreams. And I'm so glad I got to see it all the way through and see I got everything I could out of my body. And, you know, we've had conversations that maybe things would have been different if the races I was in were clean or whatever, but I know that I got everything I could out of my body. And even though there's been times where I hated running so much, but it was always the competitive part, not the motion of it. It was always the, you know, like in that period right after I graduated from college when I was injured, I'd be like, oh, I just resented that I was good at it. Um, and then after the Boston Marathon in 2009, I started to really resent it because I felt like I'm doing it for everybody but myself. But the truth of the matter is every time I would go run, I'd just be happier no matter what. And that's how it is in my life now. So it, it was worth it, I think, because, you know, I'm not really a regrets person because I can't go back. And I made all the, I believe that I made all the best choices I could in the moment I was in. And so I've learned to sort of forgive myself for some of the things I wish I hadn't done. But it was worth it because I got to find out. I got to find out how good I could be. And now I'm 44 and I can kick around and enjoy the sport from a totally different angle um, and just love the activity of it. Yeah, you closed the book by saying, I'm still in love with it and I always will be. And I believe that. I feel it. Last question. The book opens with a quote. When a woman tells the truth, she is creating the possibility for more truth around her. Quote from Adrian Rich. And to me, that's one of the big messages beyond just having this joy and experiencing running the way you want, but also speaking truth, especially truth in situations like this that were full of wrongdoing and darkness. So what's your message with that in mind to anybody who might read this, who might have their own truth to tell? It's important to speak out if you can, if you are in the place mentally to do so. And your story matters. You know, like I, this is great that I have this book coming out and I'm getting all this attention. But like, remember, I'm just like a kid that grew up in the woods. Like I'm like feral, you know, I don't even know how to do makeup or eat organic food or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, and it, but it matters. It matters because if, if we all, you know, even let's go back to the book for a second, the pregnancy bit you know, I'm going through this. I feel like I'm going crazy. No one, no one's on my side. Everyone's saying, yeah, well, you, you had a medical condition, so you shouldn't get paid. And, you know, it's crazy. But then when I finally was willing to talk about it and Alicia Montagna was willing to talk about it and Allison Felix was willing to talk about it, then change happened. And that's the power of us collectively 
using our voice. So yeah, there were times where I felt like I was yelling into the wind and I was like, why am I doing this? Like I'm just opening up myself for negativity and judgment. But in the end, other women would join and it would be louder and it would work and we would force change. And so I think don't, don't hold it all in, you know, don't be afraid to share it because I promise you we have all experienced that maybe in a different way, but we've all felt that way at some point and we can relate to you. No one is alone in all of this. Everyone has felt these ways in their life and we're stronger together than we are apart and isolated. No doubt. Thank you, Kara, for coming on. Thank you for sharing your book and your story. I really appreciate it. It's inspiring to me as well. So thank you. And I know it'll it'll be inspiring to others. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Okay. There you go. Kara Goucher, everyone go check out her book, The Longest Race. So, so good. And thanks to Kara for joining me. Thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time. We'll talk to you soon.